Welcome to the Blue Collar Scholar. I am your host, Will Wrights. I load freight with a forklift. I have been a bus driver and a substitute teacher, and I am a history graduate student. I am an ordained pastor, and I hope to become a history professor. In this podcast, we will explore history, theology, pop culture, current events, and perhaps a few other topics along the way. The Blue Collar Scholar is written, recorded, and edited by Will Wrights. The opening and closing music is Lo-Fi Summer Background by Vladislav Kurnikov from Pixabay. The purpose of this podcast is to educate. Use and distribution of this podcast can only be done by the express written permission of the content creator of this podcast. However, if you enjoyed this episode, I would appreciate it if you liked and subscribed to Blue Collar Scholar in Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast distributor. Writing a review, leaving a five-star rating, and sharing links in your social media platform is also much appreciated. Thank you for joining us. So tonight we are going to look, we're going to finish our biographies and we're going to talk about the Apostle Paul. Now since about half of the New Testament is written by the Apostle Paul, or at least half of the books, in terms of actual letters written, Luke actually takes the cake between Luke and Acts. That's a lot of writing. But since Paul wrote about half the New Testament, and I'd say he's responsible for over half of the theology in the New Testament, we've already been through a lot of Paul. So most of this is going to be review. So what I'm hoping to do today is to kind of give an overview so we can, in our minds, wrap our minds around Paul's entire career. And if we get done a little early tonight, then we get done a little early tonight. So that would be just fine. Okay, so I did some research today, and the best source I found was something called the Blue Letter Bible. I don't know much about this source, but it is an online Bible study source that claims to be evangelical, but under no specific denomination. So it's it's not Southern Baptist or Evangelical Free or King James Only or anything like that. It's a general Bible study tool for those who believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. So blueletterbible.org and what we're going to look at today is the Paul timeline, or at least I'm going to be heavily using the Paul timeline. So, as we don't really know exactly when Paul was born, but based on general ages and, and what we can assume about him, we, we think that a, a good date for his birth would have been around the year 5. So if we do the math, this would make Paul about 9 years younger, about 9 or 10 years younger than Christ. Because the more I think about it, if Herod the Great died in 4 BC, which there are some people who would dispute that date, but it tends to be generally accepted. And Jesus, his existence caused Herod to uh, lose his cool and kill all the kids two and under. Then I think that puts Jesus in the one and a half range. So Jesus was probably born between 6 and 5 B.C. So we're probably talking Jesus is in his upper 30s when he dies. And this would also, this, this therefore would make Paul about 10 or 10 and a half years younger than Christ, which would put him right about the same age as Peter or maybe some of the older disciples. We really don't have a good handle on the age of the disciples, except we're pretty sure Peter was the oldest of them, and we're pretty sure John was the youngest of them. Other than that, the rest, I'd say, would probably be in the 18-19 range, would be my best guess, somewhere in that range, late teens, early 20s, young, young men. Uh, old enough to get out on their own and do their own thing and follow an itinerant preacher if they want to, uh, young enough that they can just drop everything and go follow an itinerant preacher for a while. Paul was born, we assume, in Tarsus, which is part of Cilicia. So right up there in the yellow on the map, you actually can see Tarsus right there. Tarsus of Cilicia. So it's almost due north of Jerusalem, except if you're traveling, you would have to go a little off because you'd end up in the ocean if you just walked north of Jerusalem. You'd end up in the ocean eventually. We know that's where Paul's from. He identifies himself as Saul of Tarsus. 
So it's, it's reasonable to assume that that's where he was born. The, really, the one thing we know about his young life is that he was born a Roman citizen, which eventually will become common. At, at a certain point in the Roman Empire, most people will earn Roman citizenship through a variety of ways. Those that live in the immediate vicinity of Rome will earn it for generations back Roman citizenship. At one point in Roman history, you had to actually live in Rome. And then it gets expanded to the area around Rome, and then it gets expanded to military and economic leaders, and then eventually something called Italian rights comes into play, where pretty much everybody who lives on the Italian peninsula becomes Roman citizen, and then eventually it just keeps expanding. As the Caesars need a bigger and bigger selection of loyalty from the populace, they expand citizenship rights. But at this point, it's actually still kind of rare. So there's one point where Paul is, it's before his trials in Jerusalem and in Caesarea Philippi, where he has most uh, several of his trials. He addresses the crowd and he mentions that Christ called to send him to the Gentiles and the crowd want to destroy him. So he gets rearrested, pulled inside, and he's talking to the Roman uh, centurion or, or whatever the military officer is, and and the officer says, aren't you that one guy, that Egyptian fellow, just some kind of current events nonsense The the centurion obviously doesn't really know who Paul is. So Paul says, no, I'm Paul, I was preaching Jesus Christ, I'm a Jew by birth, etc., and I'm, I'm a Roman citizen. And the centurion goes, well, you're a Roman citizen? How, how did you become a Roman citizen? I had to pay for my Roman citizen. This is a high-ranking military official, and he had to pay for his citizenship. And Paul says, I was a citizen by birth. And the best we can tell what happened is that Paul's father probably either bought his citizenship, having been financially successful, or maybe he earned his citizenship by some kind of meritorious action for the state of Rome. We're actually not sure. We're just guessing. But it seems like Paul's father earned citizenship, and therefore Paul was born a citizen. Likewise, in the United States, we have basically three paths to citizenship. You can either be born in the United States under the 14th Amendment. Everybody born uh, in the United States or under territory that can only be considered United States territory, like Guam or the Puerto Rico, you get citizenship at birth. Or you can be naturalized in, like my wife was, or you can be born overseas, to, but one of your parents is a U.S. citizen in good standing. So, for instance, John McCain was born overseas. He was born in Panama. Now, in John McCain's case, he was born on a U.S. Army base, so he was still probably qualify anyway, but both of his parents were U.S. citizens, so he's fine. Barack Obama, also, he, one of his parents, his mother was a U.S. citizen, so whether he was born in Hawaii or anywhere else, he was born a U.S. citizen. So, in the United States, you could be a citizen by those three ways. In Rome, it was a lot more complicated. What we know is that Paul was a citizen by birthright. This doesn't actually come into play as much as you'd think, except for in two ways. One is, it seems like since he was a Roman citizen, he had the right to appeal to Caesar. I'm not sure that just any old person in the Roman Empire could just appeal to Caesar. I think that was a citizen's right. So when Paul was brought on trial and he finally got sick of it, he said, you know what, I just I, I appealed to Caesar. Send me to, send me to Rome. And it was either Festus or Felix, I don't remember which one, said, all right, you appeal to Caesar, to Caesar you must go. And the other advantage he got as a Roman citizen is that Roman citizens cannot be crucified. Crucifixion is a particularly heinous way to die. It is both a death sentence and a humiliation. If you're a Roman citizen, you're allowed to be uh, killed much quicker. And typically, actually, I, I don't know enough to say whether it's typical or not, but in Paul's case, it was beheading, something that's nice and quick. I mean, still terrible, but it's, it's better than being hung on a cross. So what's happening around this time? Well, Augustus becomes, well, his name is Octavian, but he takes the name Augustus when he becomes the emperor, the first emperor of Rome. He becomes the emperor of Rome 
I could go into a big detail about the transition from the Roman Republic and to the Empire with Julius Caesar and all of the wars that happened, but I don't really want to, or at least not right now. But Augustus becomes the first emperor, and he adopts Tiberius and as his successor. Tiberius is his stepson. And I want to say nephew, I don't recall, but he's not Tiberius is not Augustus's natural-born son. This actually becomes very common in Rome. It is as common for somebody to succeed in a political office as an adopted heir than it is as a natural-born heir. Which is interesting because the history of Europe after Rome is exactly the opposite. You don't see a whole lot of adopted heirs. You see centuries and generations upon generations of birthright primogeniture where the firstborn son usually takes control, which leads to all kinds of problems in European heredity, where you end up having cousins who marry cousins whose parents were cousins, uh, going back generations until you get like the Habsburg dynasty, where the last of the Habsburgs had like significant genetic malfunctions and jaws that didn't close together. It's, it was it was a bad setup. Anyway, so Augustus becomes Caesar, and then he sets up Tiberius as his successor. And then Tiberius comes to power in the year 14. So Augustus dies while Paul and Jesus are children. Jesus would be, actually, Jesus would be a young adult, in his, around 20 at the time when, when uh, the power switches to Tiberius. Between the ages of 10 and 15, Paul almost certainly spent this time at the school of Gamaliel. Gamaliel, now my notes here say that the school of Gamaliel was in Jerusalem. My reading suggested Gamaliel was up somewhere probably around Antioch. I could be wrong. My readings could be wrong. I'm not an expert on Gamaliel, but I do know that Gamaliel was part of the Sanhedrin, that council that you were, you were talking about, that you read about today. And so Gamaliel's reputation persists even 2,000 years later. Of all of the people in the New Testament that, that were not Christian or were pretty sure never did become Christian, Gamaliel's reputation is the highest. He was the most learned of the, of the Jewish people of his time, at least by reputation. When he spoke in the Sanhedrin, people listened. People shut up and listened to him. At one point, he even successfully defends Peter and John from a possible death sentence by the council because under his wisdom he said, look, if either these guys are no-account, no-nothings who are following a false messiah, and if, if that's the case, their, their church is probably going to fall apart. Don't bother yourselves with this. If we make a big fuss, then we might... Rome might come in and crush us for, for nothing. And if they are serving God, if this new Christianity thing is uh, God's doing, then what are we going to do against it? And under his advice and counsel, the council, the Sanhedrin just beat Peter and John and then let them go. And so Paul claims to have studied under the school of Gamaliel. So as one of the most learned religious leaders of his day, Paul would have studied under the best, which hints at the idea that Paul's father was probably wealthy and might explain where he got his citizenship. In the year 26, so Paul's, what, 20, 21? This is when Pilate begins serving as the governor of Judea. So this gives you an idea. 26, would that would put Pilate at about six or seven years as the governor of, of Judea when everything went down with Jesus and the death and burial and resurrection. And then in the year, according to these notes, 30 is the crucifixion of Christ. I've already told you guys before, I, I strongly believe 33 is the year. There's a lot of good reasons. I don't have them right in front of me, but I've, I've gone through it before, and I came to a strong conclusion. We're talking about the first weekend in April of the 30, year 33 AD is the death, burial, and resurrection. There's all kinds of things from Scripture. You can base it on the on who was high priest at the time, who was the governor of Judea at the time, who was the governor of Idumea, uh, who was in charge over Galilee, who was... The Scripture gives us dozens of these markers that help us to, to pinpoint exactly where certain things happen in time. And then you can ba uh, go based on the festival calendar and when Passover is. The year's 33. You'll hear 30 a lot. 30 is not egregiously wrong, but I, I, just, I think 33 is a better guess. So... 
because of that, I'm going to have to adjust some of these years on the notes that I'm borrowing from Blue Letter Bible. So, sometime around this is probably when Paul starts his training as a Pharisee. I am no expert on Pharisees, but what I have picked up along the years is this. Pharisees as a group were, you had to be men, and you had to be married, although I believe there was a role for people who were not yet married who were training to be Pharisees. It's possible, that's Paul. It's possible Paul never earned the status of Pharisee, having been a bachelor his whole life. Or, it's possible that Paul was married, and his wife just let him go do his thing, and just they, they were effectively separated. I don't think that really lines up with what we know about Paul, ethically speaking. What's more likely is I think Paul was married, and once he turned to Christ, I think his wife wanted nothing to do with it and sent him on his merry way. Which explains Paul's teaching in is it Corinthians? I think it's one of the books of Corinthians where he says, if a spouse will stay, then stay. Make it work. And if the spouse leaves, let him leave. That would give you a, a personal aspect of that teaching from him. But anyway, as a very young adult, he would have begun his training as a Pharisee and, oh yeah, I was talking about what, what a Pharisee is. So, you have to be a man. You have to be reasonably wealthy. It's not that the you had to pay like dues to get in. It, it wasn't like a Harvard club where you had to be rich and belonging to the club proved that you're rich. It was rather a idea like from the book of Proverbs and other places in the Old Testament that strongly implies that God will provide blessings upon those who are wise and those who are righteous. And so... In order, it was basically, it's bad logic, really. And Paul will understand this. In half of his teachings, you'll see Paul's heart on this. That, But the, the logic is this, that if you're poor, then it's possible, not a guarantee, but it's possible that God doesn't like you or that you're being punished, and that's why you're poor. And that if you're rich, you're being blessed by God. Unfortunately, we all can look at the world and see examples on, on all four corners of that. You could see... Rich people who've earned it. You can see rich people who are evil. You can see poor people who've probably earned it from laziness or or slothfulness. And you see poor people who you swear up and down you've never seen anybody work so hard in your life. We all know that life is much more complicated than the pharisaical idea of if you're righteous and you're wise, you will be blessed by God and you will be at least a little bit wealthy. Pharisees attempted to hold all 613... I've heard 613, 616, 630, 606. I've heard basically 600 plus laws. So as a Pharisee, you have to keep up with all of the laws in the Old Testament, and you have to do your best never to break one. And the laws that apply to every day, you have to do every day, like washing your hands. And Sabbath laws, like you can only walk so many, you can only take so many steps or else you're doing work. So it's called a Sabbath day walk. It's basically however long it takes for you to get from your home to your synagogue and back. It's about... A Sabbath day walk. All of this describes Paul's dedication. He was a Pharisee. Since we're talking about Pharisees, what happens in the year 70 AD, we've talked about this. This is a, a pivotal year in Christian theology because this is the year that Rome destroys the temple. And a lot of things change. Old forms of Judaism start to die out. And the key one is Sadducees. The group of the Sadducees, and most of the priests were Sadducees, their sect starts to die out because much of the vitality of their sect was tied to the temple. And without the temple, they lose their influence. Obviously, you don't need any priests without the temple. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were in a good position to take the lead. Their sect was not necessarily tied to the temple. It more emphasized the local synagogue community. It emphasized local religious control. And so by the time you get several generations after the destruction of the temple, Judaism and Phariseeism are basically the same thing. So modern Judaism descends almost exclusively from Pharisees of the sects that exist at this time. And I don't know all the sects, but I do know like the Sadducees and the Zealots. We mentioned the Zealots last week with Simon the Zealot. 
the Zealots were, for lack of a better term, they were like the Knights Templar. They were a religious and a military order. They combined the concepts. They were like freedom fighters. They wanted to fight Rome for God. They die off, the Sadducees die off, and the Pharisee sect basically becomes Judaism. So modern-day conservative Judaism is basically the Pharisee sects that Jesus and Paul would have dealt with. As far as the other sects that exist today, like Reformed Judaism, and I'm not an expert on those, and those don't come into play until the modern times. Before I move on in Paul's life, any questions, any comments? One thing that I read today was that the Pharisees believed in the Old Testament as authoritative, mm-hmm. and oral traditions were authoritative, but the Sadducees did not. They only accepted the Torah. Yeah, I the Sad- that interesting. Yeah, the Sadducees would only accept the five books of the Torah as authoritative. Now, it's my understanding that most Sadducees would still they would still have a place for the Psalms or Isaiah or these other books, but they wouldn't consider them authoritative in the same way they would consider Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Well, they didn't believe in the resurrection either, and I think, I don't know, but then the Sadducees did believe? No, the Sadducees did not believe I mean, in the resurrection. the Pharisees re- did believe in The Pharisees did believe in the resurrection, and Paul, in one of his trials, successfully plays the crowd. He plays the Pharisees against the Sadducees by saying... Brothers, I'm on trial here because I believe in the resurrection. And that got all the Pharisees in the crowd who were predisposed to not like him because he was part of this Christian sect to all of a sudden rally behind him. Paul was a shrewd, intelligent man. Okay, so we're coming to the part where Paul actually appears in Scripture. He first makes an appearance at the stoning of Stephen. So now we're talking about probably between two and five years after the resurrection. The church is still young, very young, and in fact, there doesn't seem to be any evidence of anybody having died for the faith yet. Peter and John have been beaten a few times. I think the implication is at least one of the beatings was pretty severe. But so far, it doesn't seem like anybody has been killed. And then what happens is that the apostles realize that they're getting bogged down with all of the duties that need to happen in order for a religious community to function. Basically, they said this, we're trying to start a global church here. Actually, they don't know yet about global. They still think it's pretty much a Jewish event, but they're, they're saying we're trying to start a church here. We still don't have the New Testament. We don't have our own scriptures yet. We're still writing all this stuff. We're still working through all this stuff. We need to be focusing on theology and organization and worship. These are the things we need to focus on. So what they do is they raise up seven young men as deacons. And the word deacon in Greek means servant. And their job was to take the lead in making sure that the widows and the orphans got fed. Stephen was one of these deacons. And Stephen kind of oversteps his calling. Now, we know from the end of Stephen's speech with Christ standing beside the throne in his presence, which is a direct copy of what happens if you are a general and you walk into the king's court, and if the king wants to honor you, the king will stand as you walk in, which is the opposite of the way a court should work. Everybody else stands while the king walks in. And then the king sets down and everybody else sets down, like in a courtroom. But if the king wants to honor you, then the king will stand as, as you, as you, a commanding general, walks into the room. And so if Stephen is standing there after giving this speech before the crowds, and he looks up and he sees the Son of God standing beside the throne. That's the mental image you're supposed to be of, like a command, of, of a victorious general, and that's Stephen. And Stephen loses his life. What was Paul's role in this event? The implication might be some kind of organizational leadership, that he might have been the instigator of the violence. All we do know is that Acts said that the people who threw the stones laid their cloaks at his feet. So all we know for sure is that Paul, who is still going by Saul of Tarsus because he hasn't began his Greek ministry yet, so they lay the, their cloaks at Saul's feet. So we know Saul was involved. We don't know 
whether he had a leadership role. It does not seem like he was actually one of the stone throwers, though. The Pharisees could not crucify anybody, but they could stone somebody? Well, no, not technically. It seems like it's the crowd that's doing this. See, Stephen does not go on trial. Actually, actually kind of implied that he is on trial, isn't he? He's brought into the temple. But the way I read it, I might need to read it again. Just so I'm making sure I'm putting, I'm I don't telling know, you the truth. Thought, just hit me. No, you're absolutely right. The last time I read it, this is the mental image I've got. He's brought to the temple to answer for his, what he's saying, what he's doing. I don't get the sense that it's an official trial. It's more like a question and answer session. And he takes that opportunity to preach. I think he's in the main courtroom, the court, not in the holy place, or the, certainly not the holy of holies. You have to be a high priest to be in there. So it's, it's an area called the court of the Gentiles, only because Gentiles are allowed in there. So if you're not Jewish, say you're a convert to Judaism, you're allowed to go into the temple, but only into the first court. I think that's where Stephen is. And so it's the people in that court, the same court where Jesus drove out the money changers. It seems like they're the ones that produce some mob justice. It doesn't seem like Stephen actually had a verdict come down and a legal, you know, uh, there was no gavel. There's nothing like that happened. It seems like it was a little bit more like mob justice. But you're right. The, the actual Sanhedrin knew that they didn't have the right to execute people. That's why they got the Romans involved to execute Christ. Paul had some kind of role, perhaps a leadership role, but he had some kind of role in that. Coming off of the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr, he becomes a persecutor of the church. By his own description, it's unclear whether he actually murders people or whether he simply arrests people or more likely it's somewhere in the middle, that he arrested people knowing that they were going to get murdered by somebody else. All we know is that he was a persecutor of the church, and he doesn't run from this. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He, In his later writings, he owns that this became his career for a while. He is on the road to Damascus about four, about the best guess, about four years after the resurrection. So that would be about 37 Somewhere in that range. So the church is still really young. And he's on the road to Damascus. And Jesus appears to him in what really can't be called a pure resurrection experience or a vision. It's somewhere in between. The reason why this is important is because if Jesus just appears to him in a vision, then Paul has no right to be called an apostle. You have to be called by Christ, specifically to be an apostle and to do the work of an apostle. And so when Jesus appears to Paul on the road to Damascus, the people who are traveling with him, they fall down, they hear something, they see something, but they don't see Jesus and they don't... It's like thunder and lightning to them. They, they can't perceive what's going on. But something's real. It's real. It's not a visionary experience where only Paul's experiencing this. But it's not a pure resurrection experience because when Jesus appears to other people before his ascension, more often than not, they don't even know who they're talking to at first. So on the road to Emmaus, he walks all the way to Emmaus with two disciples before they even know who that this is Jesus they're talking to. So this post-ascension appearance of, appearance of Christ was glorious. And it was something more than just a regular resurrection appearance, but, but also something... It wasn't just a vision. And so, with this appearance, Jesus calls uh, Jesus calls Paul, specifically, to be his apostle. And then, because of what Jesus tells Ananias, in what, in this case, is probably a vision, Jesus tells Ananias, I need you to go evangelize to this guy because he's going to be my apostle to the Gentiles. And so through those two appearances and and what he says to his new disciple and his old disciple, well, Ananias, when I say disciple, not a capital D, not one of the twelve, but as a disciple, as a follower. So he says to his brand new convert and his not brand new convert, we can put them together and realize that Jesus is specifically calling Paul to start a new thing, 
to bring the gospel outside of the confines of just the Jewish sect, the Jewish ethnic group. And it's no surprise that the very next chapter in Acts is when Jesus does the same thing with Peter. He calls Peter to go reach out to Cornelius, an Italian Roman military official, a high military official with no Jewish blood, and to go bring him into the church, to bring him into salvation. And so it's right here in the middle of Acts where the narrative starts to change and we go from the church being a Jewish thing to a global thing. I mean, it was enough of... Uh, it, it was enough, mind-blowing enough for the Jewish Christians to even admit Samaritans. Jewish attitudes towards Samaritans were is kind of like Alabama and Auburn fans. You know, they they don't like each other viscerally, but they're from the same state and they play the same sport. They they don't really hate each other. They're just rivals. And so for Jews, they were rivals with Samaritans, and there was a lot they didn't like about Samaritans. But when push come to shove, the Samaritans were part Jewish. And so if the Holy Spirit was going to appear to the Samaritans, then fine. The Samaritans will be part of the church. But adding Cornelius and then sending Paul and Barnabas into Greece, that was, that was extremely mind-blowing for the church. Unfortunately, a century later, the church is almost not even Jewish anymore. And that's, that's really sad. So, Paul is converted in Damascus, and immediately he starts preaching. But we don't know the success of his preaching. We don't know if it's overly successful. He knows a lot of the Old Testament because he was in the school of Gamaliel and he was a Pharisee. But we don't know yet how much New Testament theology he knows. Honestly, most of what he knows about Jesus probably just comes from the fact that he's been persecuting the church for a while. So it's like, well, all the stuff I didn't believe, I guess I believe it all now. But that's not necessarily a guarantee that you actually have good theology or that you had good theology before. Just you know, reverse theology. And so the followers of Christ let him down from, I believe they said in a basket, which has Moses mental imagery all over it, but they let him down from the city wall and he's able to escape. From the book of Galatians, what it seems like happens then is that Paul travels into Arabia for some reason to maybe go live in a monastery or to just go be a monk for a while to pray and study. Maybe he only goes to Arabia for a little bit. Maybe he just goes out there for a vision experience. We're not entirely sure how long he remains there. I've heard it preached that he stays there for three years. I don't know that for sure. But he goes out to Arabia. He seems to, in Galatians, he describes having a vision of heaven. He, he receives some enlightenment from God. We do know that he returns to Damascus. He goes up to Jerusalem for a short period of time. And then he returns to Tarsus, to his hometown. And in Tarsus, he stays put for a solid decade. So for a while, Paul is not really in the picture. What I think is that it's basically during this time that he actually settles down and studies the Scriptures again, but this time from the perspective that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Messianic passages in the Old Testament. And he's preparing himself. He might not even really know what he's preparing himself for, but he's preparing himself to become the Apostle Paul. That's what he's preparing himself for. It is during this time that uh, Herod Antipas dies. It is during this time that Tiberius dies as the Emperor of Rome and is replaced by Caligula. History is not kind to Caligula. He was a sexual deviant. He, by reputation at least, I haven't done a deep dive into Caligula, but by reputation he was a sexual deviant and he was into alcohol and I believe even he was at least accused of having sexual relations with his family members. It was pretty rough. And in fact, in English, there is an idiom that has been passed down, which is the last days of Caligula, which is a way of describing when a political or a religious group just starts to fall apart and all sense of decency and normalcy have just gone out the window. It's the last days of Caligula. Caligula is murdered uh, during this decade while Paul is gone and then Claudius takes over. Claudius has a crippled foot 
he was uh, not considered a great emperor, but he was he stepped into the role and held the he he helped heal some of the wounds that were caused by Caligula's chaotic reign. There was a famine in Rome during this time. At the end of this decade, so now we're talking around 46, 47, somewhere in that range, Barnabas, who is, I believe, an apostle, not one of the 12 disciples, but maybe part of that 70, I believe he's an older gentleman, he older than Paul, I mean, he travels to Tarsus in order to recruit Saul to begin some missionary work. And together, Barnabas and Saul set up camp in Antioch and spend, according to these notes, about a year. So they go from Antioch, which I believe is where Barnabas is from, if I remember right. He goes up to Tarsus, recruits Saul, and then they come back to Antioch and for a year, they began. They they plan for the first missionary journey. And so, around the year forty eight, they begin the first missionary journey. So these blue, these blue lines. I hadn't realized this at the time, but apparently, according to the this, and is it my notes agree? Yeah, they go to Cyprus. So I hadn't realized this. So. Maybe I need to read Acts again. Actually, we'll be reading Acts again soon if you're on our Bible study for, that I put on Facebook. So they, they, I guess they get on a boat and they go to Cyprus. Barnabas will end up doing a lot of work in Cyprus. I believe when Paul goes on his second missionary journey up into Europe, I think Barnabas keeps working in Cyprus. And according to church tradition, this is where Barnabas will die on this island. To this day, Cyprus is a multicultural and divided place. It has a border that runs almost across, almost dividing. Even though it's a, a flat island, you would think it would divide this way, but it seems to divide more or less north and south. The north part of the island is culturally Greek. The south part of the island is culturally Turk. Obviously, it probably wasn't that way 2,000 years ago. But it was still a how do I put it, a turbulent area. The Phoenicians from the Old Testament, the people who set up in Tyre and Sidon, so right along here, modern-day Lebanon, the Phoenicians set up a maritime empire throughout the Mediterranean as far as uh, they had some bases in Spain and, and Syracuse in Sicily and Carthage, which you can't see but is right here, they were all Phoenician, but so was Cyprus. Cyprus was the uh, where the Phoenicians set up a, a big deal of their work. I don't know why I'm going through all this. It's just more background information. So in the first missionary journey, they go to Cyprus, and then they go tra start traveling around Galatia. It is after the first missionary journey then that Paul writes his first book, the book of Galatians, as he's, when they return to Antioch and... I don't know in my notes how long they're in Antioch, but for a short period of time, before they begin going on the second missionary journey. It is during this time that he writes Galatians to the churches he just visited up here. Derby, Iconium, Lystra, Antioch in Pisidian, not to be confused with the main Antioch, Perga, uh, yeah, these areas. The Galatian areas. Okay, so between the, after the first missionary journey, both Paul and Barnabas are involved in the Council of Jerusalem. So they go from Antioch down into Jerusalem. It is during this council, which is the first church council. So all the councils we've talked about before, like Nicaea and Constantinople and Cappadocia, and uh, even as late as the 16th, 16th century, the Council of Trent was a Catholic council. And I think we've even mentioned Vatican II in here. That was in the 1960s. So the first of the church councils was in Jerusalem. And the church had to answer some questions about what were we going to do about the, the church expanding into a global outreach? What decisions do we have to make? And basically they said, well, let's encourage people not to eat blood. Not entirely sure why they went that way. And, and to avoid sexual immorality. But no, we're not going to make people get circumcised, especially as adults. And we're not going to make them obey every single law in the Old Testament. These are Gentiles, after all. Let's get them focused on Christ. 
Bring them into the church, not into the temple. And Paul and Barnabas were part of that effort. The Council of Jerusalem then therefore answers some of the issues that were addressed in the book of Galatians. And Paul never really has to deal with issues like circumcision again in his writings after that. I think he touches on it here and there, but it never becomes a major theme again. Because once the Council of Jerusalem releases their findings, Paul's then able to expand into other theological areas. After the Council of Jerusalem, then Paul and Barnabas have a split. Now, I'm just basing this on the fact that Paul never mentions Barnabas again. But I, th- I don't think it was, I don't think it was a, a friendly split. I think they, they must have got, they must have went to blows, maybe not literally blows, but I, don't, I, I think they, they upset each other. So what happened is you have John Mark, the author of Mark, which ironically, if you read Paul's later works, John Mark's back in the picture. Paul will eventually forgive John Mark. Uh, He either doesn't forgive Barnabas, or, if church tradition is right, Barnabas only has about nine years left before he's uh, martyred, and so Paul probably never gets a chance to reconcile with Barnabas. But John Mark leaves the first missionary journey to go back home to his mom because he's very young, and very young people make decisions like that. When it's time for the second missionary journey, John Mark wants to go again, and Barnabas wants to take him. Paul says, no, we're not taking the guy that left us the first time. So Barnabas takes Mark, and they go to Cyprus. Paul takes a new partner, Silas, and originally they planned to go back on the exact same route they went the first time, the uh, first missionary journey. Paul receives a vision from the Holy Spirit of a man of Macedonia. So you can see... Macedonia right here is, according to this map, is all of this this yellow area. This is actually, all, all these cities, Berea and Thessalonian, they wouldn't have been considered Macedonia. They would have been considered something else. I wonder who made this map. Because Achaia, this is actually Peloponnesia. This is Achaia. This is Macedonia. Anyway, it's not, it's not a terrible map, but Philippi, that's Macedonia. Philippi is the Macedonian beachhead. This is where the Macedonians have access to the sea. And this is what Paul sees in his vision, that we need to go to Philippi. And so from, let's see, the second missionary journey is the light pink. So from probably, according to this, Antioch is probably where he receives the the vision of the man of Macedonia. And so from there, they, they go up here and cross over into Europe. And... Neapolis and Philippi are where they first go. And here is where they meet Lydia, the first European convert, and they begin hugging the coast as they do the second missionary journey. (coughs) Paul and Silas. What would that be in modern... All of that would be modern Greece. All that Macedonia and all that would be Greece? Well, this part up here, Greece would be from here down. This is Croatia. This is a country called North Macedonia. Here's Bosnia and Herzegovina. And Serbia is in right about here too. And then right here, if you cut off this part of Europe, that's actually part of Turkey. So this little right here, this is part of, of, of Turkey. And, but yeah, from here down, that's all Greece. Good question. Now we've actually talked quite a bit about the missionary journeys So I'm going to skip some of this. It's during the second missionary journey that they're imprisoned for casting out a demon from a slave girl in Acts 16. So I want to mention this real quick. A slave girl who tells the future, I suppose, some kind of fortune teller, she follows Paula and Silas around for a while saying, listen to these men, they come bearing a message from God Most High. I've had theological disagreements with fellow seminary students about this, the there seems to be two options. One is that God Most High is to be seen as a shorthand for Zeus. That there, she's basically telling the crowds they're here to bring glory to Zeus, and that's why Paul loses his temper and casts out the demon, and she no longer can be a fortune teller. If that's the case, why did Paul wait several days to do this? What I think is more likely is that this fortune-telling slave girl who has uh, dark spiritual power behind them 
was actually being honest and saying, hey, these people worship the real God. Come get it. And I think what Paul's reaction for driving the, the demon out of the slave girl was twofold. One, it was care for the girl so that the girl no longer has is being afflicted by dark spiritual power. And second of all, it matters where the message comes from. It matters the character and the source, no matter how good the message is from. Your favorite political message, if it's coming from a moral degenerate, is a bad idea. Your favorite religious message, your favorite educational message, your favorite sports coach, if it's coming from a moral degenerate or from a some kind of questionable source, then that's not a good thing, no matter how good the message is. I wonder if she was yelling or trying to disrupt, you know, disrupt it some way. I think that's all that's possible. I, I don't think there's actually, Acts gives us enough details about exactly what that scenario was like. It's an interesting case in Paul's ministry. I think part of the clue is that he waited several days before he did something about it. And so that to me leads me to believe that even he was questioning what would be the wisest thing. Because if this girl, he may, they might not even realize what was happening. They might have just thought that this was a random citizen saying, everybody come listen to these people. Maybe Paul only realizes later what was really happening. Whereas if, if this girl was walking around telling everybody that these are apostles of Zeus, surely Paul would have done something about that right out, right out of the gate. Anyway, you can tell by the way I described the debate which side of the debate I fell on. I think that, that God Most High is not... Uh, shorthand for Zeus, I think she really was, or at least the, the dark spiritual power, really was, for whatever reason, giving the right message. These these are apostles of God here. Now, I am always terrible at this. I never remember exactly in the book of Acts where the second missionary journey ends and the third missionary journey begins. So I might be wrong about this, but I think it's during the third missionary journey that Paul then comes to Athens. And Athens, I want to mention, because it's in Athens where two things happen. One is, it seems to be the only place where he arrives and doesn't have a team with him. This might be an accident, or maybe poor planning, or maybe he just wanted, he had reasons for wanting to go into Athens alone. But everywhere else he goes, he's got people with him. He's got Luke, Silas, Timothy, Barnabas, Mark, Priscilla and Aquila, Aristarchus, there's a whole list. There's dozens of people who Paul ministers with, but not in Athens. So it's interesting that the second thing I'll mention about his time in Athens, he doesn't start a church there. It seems it seems to indicate that maybe there was a, a, a two or three or four, not very many converts, but not enough for him to start and leave a church. And those two facts might be connected. Maybe not having a team hindered his ability to to start a lasting work there. So anyway, as the it's during the second missionary journey that he begins work in Ephesus, and it is during the third missionary journey that he shuts down his ministry in Ephesus because he knows he's he's on his way home to go on, on trial. He we've talked about the trials before, so I'll only be sh- short about it. He uh, goes to Jerusalem he spends a few days there. He shaves his head as part of a Nazarite vow, he, which would also imply that he, he uh, abstains from uh, certain eating practices and, and sexual activity that otherwise might be... Of course, he's single at this time, so all sexual activity is going to be off the table. He refrains from these kind of things in order to purify himself to go to the temple. He does everything right to not upset the crowds. But he can't protect himself from a misunderstanding. You see, the crowds had seen him walking around town with a Greek convert to Christ. And so when they saw him later in the temple, they thought he had brought a a Greek into the temple. He did not. And because of that, they put him on trial. He defends himself before the crowd and digs his hole even deeper by saying that Christ is the Messiah and called him to preach to the Gentiles. He goes on trial... Before he goes on trial several times, three or four times, eventually losing his frustration and or, or becoming frustrated, losing his temper and appealing to Caesar. And so, 
To Caesar he appealed as a Roman citizen. To Caesar he went. And so the Herod Agrippa II, and I always get Festus and Felix mixed up. I think Felix was the first one and Festus was the second. So it would have been Festus and Herod Agrippa II who then put him on a ship and sent him to Rome. On the way to Rome, the ship runs aground. This green arrow is the his trip to Rome. So he goes to Crete at Fair Havens. He tells the captain that we really shouldn't be traveling. We need to winter here because this part of the Mediterranean Sea gets some wicked storms during the winter and they don't listen. And they run into a storm somewhere around here. And the storm literally destroys the ship. And Paul prophesies on the ship that nobody will be lost and nobody was lost, but the ship was gone. And all the people wash up on Malta. It is in Malta. At this point in the story, Paul actually hasn't performed any miracles for a while. Very few people have. The, the, the count of miracles from, the, from Jesus' ascension to the end of Acts starts to decrease a great deal. Now, I don't really have a theological point I'm making here. There are certain people who hold a position called cessationism, where the, the says the miraculous gifts have ceased. And then there are other people, namely charismatics, who believe that miraculous gifts continue. I'm not making a point on that either way. I'm just saying that early on in the book of Acts, miracles are more common. Later in the book of Acts, they are not. But in Malta, a completely virgin territory for the gospel, all of a sudden, another major miracle happens, and that is Paul gets struck by a viper, a kind of viper that is so powerful that the locals believe that he must have... He must be cursed by the gods because he's going to die really soon. But he just shakes the snake off into the fire and he doesn't even apparently even swell up. It appears to be miraculous and the, the locals declare him a god. Of course, he doesn't accept that. He preaches Christ. And they do spend the winter in Malta before they begin the trip up to Rome. And the book of Acts ends with Paul in prison waiting to be on trial. So that ends... Paul's story in the book of Acts. At this point, he's written Galatians after his first trip. During the second trip, after the second trip, he writes 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. It is during the third trip that he writes 1st Corinthians, then Romans, then 2nd Corinthians, and that's that's it. Because he doesn't start writing Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians until he's here until he's in Rome and he's under house arrest and he's he's got the time to actually write these letters. Now at this point we need to go on some evidence from the first and second Timothy and Titus. But from church tradition we then learn what Paul does from this point on. He is released from this first imprisonment. But we're now in the year 66. He's only got two years of life left. This first imprisonment, I've described this many times, so this will be review. But I believe what happened is Caesar is going through the list of people who appeal to Caesar. The Caesar's legal advisor says, okay, we've got this uh, Paul. He's here because he violated re Jewish religious customs. And Caesar said, I'm not going to waste any of my time on this. Let him go. And so he's let go. And from this point, it is unclear some of church tradition says he does go west to Spain. In the book of Romans, which is written during the third missionary journey, when he's around, where's Corinth? Right here. When he's around this area, when he writes the book of Romans, that is his intention. His intention is to go to Jerusalem and then go to Spain. And he hopes to visit Rome on the way. Whether he actually makes it to Spain or not is, is, is debatable. We do know that he spends some time along this coast of what is now Croatia, in this area. And it is during this time that he writes to Timothy, as Timothy is doing ministry in Ephesus, right here. And he writes to Titus, who's doing ministry on the island of Crete. I've said this before, I think Paul sends Titus to Crete while he's in house arrest. Because 
Paul has had no experience with Crete yet until he's being dragged to Rome in chains. I think from Rome he tells Titus, we need some people here. I want you to go to Crete and start a church. And I think that's what, what Titus does. At some point he gets rearrested and he's in prison again. And this time it's a different story. This time I believe Nero is the emperor and Nero is under political pressure and part of his plan to save himself politically is to turn up the heat on Jews and Jewish sects like Christianity. Whether Nero even knew that Christianity was a thing is questionable. Remember, we're talking about the year 68. I'm guessing. It could be a little later, a little earlier. 68 is my best guess. So we're only 35 years into the church. So the idea that people wouldn't have heard of this new movement is not that surprising. So whether Nero knows that Paul is part of this Jewish break-off sect or whether he just knows that he's some kind of influential Jew, either way, he and Peter seem to get caught up in the persecutions of the Jews and perhaps of the Christians during this time, during Nero's crackdown. And it is during this time that Paul writes 2 Timothy, basically telling Timothy that, that it's, it's all over for me, that this is going to be the end of my ministry, and I've run the race, it's all over. It's up to you guys and the next generation. And he gets his head cut off. And that's the end of Paul's story. When discussing the most important people in all of history, I think Jesus is number one. I heard, I've, I've seen lists that try to make an argument for Muhammad to be number one. There's an argument there, but I don't think so. Muhammad may at one point in the future have an outreach that reaches to every country on earth, but not yet. Whereas Christianity does have influence on every point of this globe. That doesn't mean that the church is strong in every point of this globe. But even places on this earth like the heart of the Muslim Middle East or North Africa or places like Nepal and Bhutan up in the mountains, uh, up in the Himalayas, places where the gospel is really weak right now, Still, all of those people and the religious figures in the Muslim Middle East or in the Hindu and Buddhist areas of the Himalayas, they will have heard of Christianity. In fact, they will have some perceptions of Christianity, most of which will probably be false, but they will be reacting to it. In other words, the gospel has affected nearly all human civilizations at this point in history. Jesus is clearly number one on the list of most influential people of all time. I think it's fair to say Muhammad is second. I think it's fair to say Buddha is probably third. Fourth, I would actually make an argument for Plato, because I think Plato's philosophy has been at the, the ground level of most of European cultural and, and intellectual development for the last 2,500 years. But after those four... I think a really strong case could be made for the Apostle Paul as the fifth most important human being who's ever lived, or at least fifth most influential. You see, it is religious figures and philosophers, or at least the really great ones, who really affect the human heart and soul and mind. People like Julius Caesar and Alexander the Great, and even good characters like you know you. Ulysses S. Grant, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln. They are very important to history, but not as important to the people who address the deepest felt needs of humanity to our hearts and our souls and our minds. And so Jesus and Paul, I think, are both in the top five of the most important people that ever lived. Any questions or comments? I think we're really blessed that Paul was put in prison, so we do have his letters. Well, yeah, he wrote some of his, his letters before he was in prison, yeah. but I think it is fair to say that I would make an argument for Ephesians being his second most important letter after Romans. It is his theologically most dense letter. Does he write Ephesians if he's not in prison? I'm not sure. That feels like the kind of work that you would do if you had the time. Because 
if earlier in his career he he might write that much theology, but it would be a book the length of First Corinthians. To have that much dense theology in six chapters is a, an accomplishment. In terms of just the dense, and I'm, I'm meaning dense in the most positive way mm-hmm. possible, to have that much theology in so short of a book is an accomplishment he doesn't even accomplish with Romans. Philippians would be a, a close third. Yeah. Also a prison epistle. We hope you have enjoyed this production of The Blue Collar Scholar. I am your host, Will Wrights. Any factual errors made in the preparation or recording of this podcast are unintentional, and your feedback is welcome. You may contact me at thewillwrights at gmail.com. That's T-H-E-W-I-L-L-R-E-I-T-Z at gmail.com. The Blue Collar Scholar is written, recorded, and edited by Will Wrights. The purpose of this podcast is to educate. Use and distribution of this podcast can only be done by the express written permission of the content creator of this podcast. We hope you have enjoyed this episode, and we hope you will be back to download more. And thank you.